Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. For today's podcast, to continue our series on the space sciences, we're joined by professors Martin Israel and Robert Benz. Dr. Benz and Dr. Israel head the Cosmic Ray Group within the Physics Department here at Washington University in St. Louis. And in collaboration with colleagues at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, Caltech, the Jet Propulsion Lab, and the University of Minnesota, this past December, they launched a huge balloon in Antarctica, carrying a two-ton instrument dubbed Super Tiger. The instrument collected data in order to study the origins of cosmic rays. We'll get to all the details of this record-breaking flight, including a description of what cosmic rays are, shortly. But as in our last two podcasts, I started out by asking these scientists what first made them interested in studying outer space. Well, my parents told frequently the story, and I confess that I don't remember this event very clearly. But when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old, my parents went to a drive-in movie, and my sister and I were in the back seat. And my parents realized at one point that I wasn't in the back seat anymore. I was outside in the dark, looking up at the sky, looking at the stars, and I had read some things about it. And so my parents assert that when I was seven or eight years old, I was already interested in the stars more than in whatever movie was on the big screen of the drive-in at the time. So I can't say when I first got interested in things astronomical, but uh, I certainly had some interest when I was a kid in what's going on up there. I grew up in eastern Kansas, and I remember being out in, in the schoolyard looking up and seeing an airplane flying over and wondering if I would ever be in one of those. And uh, I guess that's the, the first time I really thought about space. That was Dr. Israel followed by Dr. Benz. Now let's turn our attention to the Super Tiger experiment. This instrument is not the first of its kind. A smaller version named Tiger flew over Antarctica for a total of 50 days on two separate flights, one in 2001 and the other in 2003. And what about the name Tiger and Super Tiger? It turns out that the Tiger part is an acronym. Tiger is the Trans-Iron Galactic Element Recorder. Tiger was built to detect cosmic rays. Confusingly, cosmic rays are not actually rays. They're made up from pieces of atoms, protons, electrons, and atomic nuclei that have been accelerated to very high energy in explosions around the universe. Super Tiger was built to mainly detect certain kinds of rare atomic nuclei, those that are heavier than iron. After forming, these nuclei arrive at Earth's atmosphere, and some of them encountered Super Tiger. These charged nuclei come through it and leave signals on the way, and from the electronic signals that are recorded in each of these instruments, we can infer both what the charge of this nucleus is, which tells us what element it is, and what its velocity is, or what its energy is. Because these types of nuclei are so rare, it helps to have the biggest, most sensitive instrument possible. This is why Super Tiger came after Tiger. 
So Super Tiger is essentially four tigers in one. Super Tiger is about double the size of Tiger. It's two meters wide, two meters across, 10 feet high, and heavy. And the, the weight is uh, 4,100 pounds. So it's a very big instrument that's carried up to uh, almost 130,000 feet. Did you catch that? 130,000 feet. That's about four times as high as most commercial flights. And the way it gets up there, of course, is with a very large helium-filled balloon. This is a balloon which at float altitude is a sphere about 350 feet in diameter. Picture a football field, right? The actual field is 100 yards, 300 feet. This is a sphere 350 feet in diameter filled with helium. Wish you had a chance to see this enormous balloon with your own eyes? Well, that would have been unlikely. Super Tiger flew over Antarctica. Dr. Binns was there when it launched and stayed there for over a month while it flew. But why Antarctica? The, the biggest reason is that in Antarctica in December and January and November, uh, the sun is always up. It never, never gets dark there. This is especially important for experiments that are dependent on long-duration balloons. If you launch a balloon in Missouri, for example, and, uh, well, it'll, it'll go way up during the daytime, but then when nighttime comes, uh, the helium cools because the sun is not on it anymore, and it loses lift, and so it starts to descend. But if you're in Antarctica where the sun doesn't go down, you don't have that problem. You can stay up as we did for 55 days. That was 55 days, longer than the two flights of the first Tiger combined. Before the launch, Benz was quoted saying that he would be deliriously happy if the balloon stayed up for 30 days. So how did he feel after 55? One of the things that we felt was we, we felt very tired <laughs> because we had to uh, we had people looking at the data 24 hours a day for 55 days. Now it wasn't just us down there, but Marty and others here were looking at data, and people at uh, Caltech and Goddard were also looking at data. We had shifts. Yeah. But still, when you're when you're working 55 days in a row, it's it's uh, it's pretty rigorous. The conditions in Antarctica aren't just good for the duration of the balloon's flight, however, they're also good for the research itself. When you are at the poles, because of the magnetic field of the Earth, low energy particles, in addition to the high energy particles, can stream into the poles, and you can detect them. So basically, we can just collect more particles in a given amount of time if you're near the pole than you can if you're near the equator. Now let's turn our attention fully back to these particles that are actually being collected. Well, they are they're nuclei that we think are synthesized, many of them, and accelerated when a star explodes. All of the nuclei that we know about, everything on the periodic chart of the elements, is synthesized this way. Basically, the universe started with hydrogen and helium. Everything else is made in interstellar processes, like stars exploding. The poetic way of saying it, and I'm not original with this, is we are stardust. The carbon, the calcium, the oxygen in our bodies, all is the result of these stellar processes. 
So if everything, including our own bodies, are made of stardust, why do professors Binz and Israel spend their time looking for cosmic rays? So in trying to understand these stellar processes, it's useful to have another sample of material in addition to the sample of material that we have in your body and mine and this table and this room. The pre-solar grains that we discussed with Christine Floss in last week's podcast make up one of these kinds of samples. Cosmic rays are yet another. Studying cosmic rays might seem similar to astronomy, which usually means observing the light from distant stars. But as with studying pre-solar grains, there are some fundamental differences. For one, twisted magnetic fields throughout the galaxy bend the path of these cosmic rays. So if you're trying to find out where a nuclei originated, the direction from which it came doesn't tell you much. If I look at light coming from that direction, I say, well, there it is. I'm pointing to the star that it came from. If I see one of these cosmic ray nuclei coming into my detector from that direction, that doesn't tell me anything about where it came because it came by a torturous roundabout, not a straight line route at all. And so if we want to understand things about where they come from, we have to infer it by looking at which elements are there in which relative abundances and how do those abundances differ from the abundances we're used to here in the solar system. So it's a more indirect way of looking at these galactic processes. Using these methods, Binz and Israel believe that the cosmic rays they study originate in groups of massive stars called OB associations. The stars in these associations are huge, but they don't last long. And at the end of their lives, supernova explosions occur. The, the most massive ones will have a lifetime of only about three million years, which is very, very short for the lifetime of a star. And um, theoreticians have done calculations of the, the abundances of elements that should be produced in these massive explosions. And so what we do is we compare our measurements with their calculations. And lo and behold, we get pretty good agreement in a lot of respects. But there are some respects in which we, we don't get such good, good agreement, and those are the things we're particularly interested in. The first Tiger instrument did a great job of collecting data to figure out this sort of information. But Super Tiger was able to collect much more data about the most rare type of nuclei. And some of those will help answer some questions about the processes by which these things were made. The relative abundance of rubidium, which is element 37, to strontium element 38, could vary depending on the detailed process by which these elements were made. And so far, we can't say anything about that just because we don't have enough rubidium to, to make a good measurement. But it looks like with the Super Tiger data, we will have enough to say something there. But those data are still being analyzed and still being checked and so on, so we're not really ready to talk about the conclusions from Super Tiger. The only conclusion we can talk about unambiguously is the instrument worked beautifully. We did collect a lot of these elements, these rare elements. They are very well resolved. The instrument did a very good job of telling the difference between a charge 37 and a charge 38 nucleus. 
but before we start talking about the scientific results, we really need to work on it more. So where is Super Tiger now? In the words of Dr. Israel, you could say it's in cold storage. After its record-breaking flight, the balloon was brought down on February 1st, 2013. That's the time of year when most people in Antarctica are heading home for the winter. And so the instrument came down 1,000 miles from McMurdo, and there was no way of going out and sending out a crew to recover it. So it's been sitting there. Or even to take a picture of it. You yeah. know, we, we, we wanted to get a, a flyover picture of it, but it was just too late in the season to do that. So we're sending a group back uh, in late December to, uh, to recover the instrument. Three of our colleagues from Goddard Space Flight Center and Johnny Ward, the postdoc who's working on it here from Washington U, are going to be leaving here in December and going down and hopefully early January going out, camping out on the ice a thousand miles from McMurdo, disassembling the instrument, putting the pieces into the aircraft. They'll probably be out on the ice for a week to get it back to McMurdo. And then from McMurdo it'll be shipped back to the States and hopefully we'll see it again in April or something like that. To hope then that it will fly again for 50, 60 days? Yes, that's definitely our hope. Many thanks to Bob Bins and Marty Israel for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find links to their faculty pages and more information about Super Tiger on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustel.edu. That's thought.artsci. .wustl.edu. You can also search for Hold That Thought on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and iTunes.